Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream waters. This land is made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 377, recorded on May 25th, 2021. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week, our bonus episode is about the Red Ark, also known as the Soviet Ark, the 1919 deportations of foreign-born Russian-American anarchists to the Soviet Union, specifically on the ship the Buford. We've kind of talked around this one in other episodes, and we definitely talked at length about laws criminalizing anarchist and syndicalist activities after World War I, but we've never done an episode directly on the Red Ark deportations. As always, we have all our sources posted in a PDF with the episode on patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, and this week we're citing from various academic papers, government accounts, first-person narratives, and contemporary news articles, as well as some more modern news articles and briefly some encyclopedia articles. As we'll discuss today, this incident was the most famous of numerous deportations of Russian immigrants from the United States between the Russian revolutions of 1917 and the end of 1920 and the conclusion of the Wilson administration. Some accounts say thousands of Russians were deported, while other accounts merely say thousands were arrested, but only several hundred were actually deported. This discrepancy, according to one of the sources that I read, might be due to some of the deportees being removed under different laws and thus counted or tallied separately. After 1920, the flow of political immigration essentially reversed as white Russians and others fleeing the Russian Civil War were welcomed to the United States, among other countries. But let's get into some background about the Red Ark deportations in 1919, and then after I get through that, Rachel is going to walk us through the narratives on the Red Ark voyage itself. Two key changes to the law made in 1918 allowed for these extraordinary political deportations of people who had, in some cases, been living in the U.S. for a generation. First, Added to long-standing but barely enforced immigration restrictions on anarchists were powers to deport immigrants for their political views and organizational memberships. And two, there was no longer a protection for length of time living in the United States, which is going to be important for one person in particular, uh, among several others, on this specific round of deportations. Uh, To quote from a thesis written uh, on a range of topics about criminalization of anarchists, Uh, in 1918, Congress eliminated the landing limits, permitting the deportation of foreigners no matter how long they had resided in the United States. This elimination of landing limits enabled the mass deportation of foreigners in the wake of Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer's raids and arrests of anarchists and radicals in 1919. Emma Goldman was one of these deportees. Despite having lived in the United States for over 30 years, Goldman was deported to Russia with 249 radicals on the SS Buford, the Red Ark. We are going to be talking a fair amount about Goldman, who is an example of someone that we've talked about at some length on previous episodes, but not specifically that much in the context of 
her deportation, except in passing. Um, but it's not only something that we note today, it was also something that was noted contemporaneously as being sort of the big headline grabber of this round of deportations. Uh, the New York Times, uh, which was always quite hostile to anarchists and radicals of any kind and always very excited to get rid of them. Uh, they had supported some of the earlier efforts to try to criminalize anarchists in the wake of, say, William McKinley's assassination. Uh, they were thrilled to report on December 13th, 1919, the following headline. And this is, of course, the style, which we've actually had to condense down, the style of very long headlines from the early 20th century. Quote, Hundreds of Reds on Soviet Ark sail soon for Russia. United States transport will start within 10 days with load of anarchists. Goldman goes with them, withdraws her appeal, saying she prefers jail or deportation to Ellis Island. Hundreds of Reds soon off for Russia. Red meeting forbidden. 2,000 persons dispersed by police in the Bronx. A United States transport will leave this port within 10 days for Russia, carrying several hundred Russian Reds held for deportation. Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman will be among them. Again, we did have to edit that headline because it was even longer in the original version. But as they alluded to, there was a lot of mass arrests happening and dispersals of protests and so forth. And I think it's important, again, to emphasize that the Red Ark deportations was the most famous of the deportations, but by no means uh, the only deportations and the people who were arrested and then deported on it were among a very large number of thousands who were uh, arrested, many of them specifically Russians. Uh, so let's go now to the Encyclopedia Britannica entry uh, on the Palmer raids and specifically the section about uh, these raids that led to this particular deportation. On November 7, 1919, the second anniversary of the Bolshevik takeover of Russia, U.S. and federal local authorities raided the headquarters of the Union of Russian Workers in New York City and arrested more than 200 individuals. On November 25th, a second raid on the Union of Russian Workers headquarters unveiled a false wall in a bomb factory, confirming suspicions that the Union harbored revolutionary intentions. Palmer believed that the way to deal with the radicals was to deport the immigrants. On December 21st, 249 radicals, including anarchist Emma Goldman, were packed aboard the SS Buford, which the press dubbed the Soviet Ark, and deported to Russia. Take with a grain of salt the contention that they actually found a bomb factory in this. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. As we've talked about on previous episodes, you definitely can't rely on the accounts that the government was giving about these kind of things, uh, and they were not above planting things, potentially. Um, especially, uh, as we talked about during World War I, with the American Protective League, which was actually a volunteer force. Uh, so let's go to another uh, first-person narrative here about this raid, and and then we can talk a little bit about this uh, group that was rounded up in the these November raids. So the socialist publication New York Call recounted the November 7th, 1919 raid, which one survivor compared to a Cossack attack back home in Russia. Now I'm going to quote. A witness of the event said that he saw one of the Russians trying to rush out of the building, his face and clothing covered with blood. Agonized cries were heard. One who was close to the scene while the raiders were covering themselves with the blood of men and women against whom no crime had been charged heard heavy thuds as of clubs descending on human flesh. All who attempted to escape were driven back into the building, and none but officers were permitted to enter. Two call reporters who attempted to gather the facts of the assault were threatened with arrest if they did not leave at once. One policeman on the stoop of the building shouted to the crowd that had collected outside, If there's a soldier among you, get after them. They were beaten not only with clubs, but with blackjacks. After the police and other guardians of the law had their fill of clubbing and blackjacking, they crowded the Russians together in the back of the hall and cross-examined them. 
Then they bandaged the heads of those who had suffered more than others, but even the bandages were heavily blood-stained. Meanwhile, patrol wagons, which had stationed, been stationed in the neighborhood, came clanging up and were filled as fast as they appeared with the Russians who had been beaten up. Most of them had their heads bandaged. They were thrown down steps of the stoop without ceremony. One of them moaned loudly, and the crowd outside mimicked him. The crowd was not permitted to approach too closely, and a call reporter was unable to see what marks had been made by the clubs of the police on the faces of the assaulted men and women. So I wanted to give some further uh, context and analysis from me uh, about some of the info that I found uh, on the Union of Russian Workers. And there was some good stuff in the Wikipedia article on that, but I did have to kind of um, interpolate some things uh, beyond that article, especially based on some of our recent episodes about various immigration to the United States in this period. So the Union of Russian Workers uh, had only existed for less than a dozen years, having been initiated in 1908 by refugees of the failed Russian Revolution of 1905. And it was arguably more concerned with Russian domestic politics and opposition to the Tsar than with domestic politics of the United States and Canada, apart from gestures towards solidarity with common struggles that were already underway here. Uh, the group's ideology, depending on who or when you asked, was somewhere between anarcho-communist and anarcho-syndicalist. I would refer you to our detailed episode from 2019 about various anarchist tendencies in the United States and different immigrant communities, so you can understand those distinctions further. In many ways, it mostly served as a community organization and a resource for acclimating recent arrivals from Russia, including English language lessons. Uh, but local police and federal authorities gradually became obsessed with the idea after the Russian revolutions of 1917 that this organization was patient zero for an outbreak of far-left radicalism in the U.S., the New York Times enthusiastically accused the group of dispersing 500 propagandists around the country to convert some 2 million Slavic immigrants, so to speak, to a mission of overthrowing the U.S. government on behalf of the Soviets. This, of course, completely elided the numerous distinctions between the eight or so major Slavic ethno-linguistic groups present in the United States in any great number as of the 1920 census. Their Russian-language newspaper had a circulation of less than 5,000 copies, and their most pro-Soviet leaders or editors had already returned to Russia to serve the communist war effort before these raids occurred in 1919. And again, I want to emphasize this. Outlets like the New York Times were just calling everyone very casually Slavs and saying they were from the Slavic race. And again, we're talking about somewhere north of 2 million uh, as of the year 1920 in the 1920 census uh, of the various ethnicities that we would categorize as being in some way Slavic ethnicities. But we are talking here about not only Russians, uh, but also Ukrainians, Poles, Bulgarians, uh, Czechs, Slovaks, Slovenians, and uh, Serbo-Croatians, etc., etc. Okay, those are like the, in the major groups, and then there's various other groups as well. Um, the idea that you would lump all these people together is kind of absurd. And also, uh, you know, the Poles and the Soviets were engaged in border conflicts at that time as well. Uh, and so it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to group all of these uh, together in that manner. Rachel, I want to go to you now uh, to talk about uh, a little bit more about this, this, the Red Ark itself, the Buford and the, and the deportations, um, because after a, a large number of these people were rounded up, and a lot of the people who were deported on this, I think, were taken in those November raids, as I said, on the uh, Union of Russian Workers. Um, we've got some interesting sort of first, first 
person narratives or narratives from people in the know uh, and, and interesting quotes about it at the time. Yeah. So uh, the USAT Buford uh, departed on December 21st, 1919 from New York City. Um, as you stated before, they were deported for their anarchist beliefs and many were swept up in those Palmer raids. And a majority of the workers were members of the Union of Russian Workers, uh, which was one of the major targets of A. Mitchell Palmer and uh, his buddy, J. Edgar Hoover, who was kind of a rising star at the time. Um, uh, so two famous radicals were also aboard, um, as mentioned previously, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, who had been arrested pre prior to these raids um, for opposing the draft in 1917. Um, so their notoriety was used to paint all the deportees kind of with the same radical brush, um, as you heard in the New York Times uh, headlines, um, despite the fact that the Union of Russian Workers, as you said, was largely kind of a community group. Um, it was very easy to kind of paint them all as, as these scary reds, um, just because the anti-Soviet sentiment at the time. Um, uh, apparently, there was... a an encounter between Emma Goldman and J. Edgar Hoover, um, and this is coming from a New Yorker magazine article um, called When America Tried to Deport Its Radicals. So uh, this is a quote from the article. Haven't I given you a square deal, Miss Goldman? Hoover asked as they steamed toward Brooklyn in the darkness. Oh, I suppose you've given me as square a deal as you could, she replied two hours away from being ejected from the country where she had lived for 34 years and found the voice that had won her admirers around the world. We shouldn't expect from any person something beyond his capacity. So she, even in the face of getting deported, she could still um, deliver a pretty devastating uh, burn. Um, so there were also a contingent of anti-immigrant um, authorities um, including Representative Albert Johnson from Washington State, who chaired the House Committee on Immigration and Naturalization. And he was a vociferous opponent of immigration, as well as an anti-Semite and a friend of the KKK. And um, although J. Edgar Hoover was only 24 at the time, um, he was already a rising star, um, heading the, the radical division of the Justice Department and collecting intel on subversive targets, quote unquote, subversive targets. Um, so Palmer and Hoover had friends in Congress, such as the aforementioned Representative Johnson, and used their sympathies to give them money and the authority to carry out these raids. Um, so uh, in addition to Emma Goldman, uh, out, there was Alexander Berkman. Um, listeners might recall he had served 14 years in prison for attempted assassination of Henry Clay Frick in 1892 at that Homestead strike. Um, so now to kind of go into... Um, a discussion of the voyage itself. Uh, I uh, referenced the Wikipedia article on the USAT Buford, and the section on this voyage was mostly taken from Assistant U.S. Labor Secretary Lewis F. Post's um, book titled The Deportation's Delirium of 1920, a personal narrative of an historic official experience. So he's a part of this narrative because deportations were under the authority of the Immigration Bureau which was part of the Labor Department. And we will be discussing him and his politics more extensively in a future episode. So um, as I said before, it left on December 21st, 1919, really early in the morning. It left at 6 a.m. from New York Harbor. 
The captain initially didn't even know the destination, and he only found out about the approximate destination after opening sealed orders 24 hours after departure. He ultimately learned what the final destination was while in Kiel Harbor in Germany, where they had stopped for repairs and to hire a German pilot to navigate the North Sea, which still had mines from World War I that hadn't been cleared yet. Um, the State Department had initially tried for a landing in Latvia, but this had proved too difficult, and Finland was ultimately chosen. So the Beaufort landed at Hanko, Finland on January 17, 1920. Um, from there, the deportees were held overnight in a on a train, 30 people to a boxcar with no heat and only minimal food rations. So departing Hanko on January 18th, they headed for Terijoki, Finland, two miles from the Russian border at that time. But today it is actually part of Russia. Once there, after a brief parlay between Alexander Berkman and the Russians, the deportees were allowed to cross into Russia. Um, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman were the last to cross the border, waiting until everyone else had already crossed. Uh, the Russians welcomed the deportees enthusiastically with cheering and a band playing the Russian national anthem. However, the journey was pretty miserable, and both Goldman and Berkman wrote of it in their personal accounts. Um, so Emma Goldman wrote in My Disillusionment in Russia, quote, For 28 days we are prisoners. Sentries at our cabin doors day and night, sentries on deck during the hour we were daily permitted to breathe the fresh air. Our men comrades were cooped up in damp, dark, damp quarters, wretchedly fed, all of us in complete ignorance of the direction we were to take. And um, Alexander Berkman wrote in The Russian Tragedy, quote, We were prisoners, treated with military severity, and the Buford, a leaky old tub, repeatedly endangering our lives during the month's odyssey. Long, long was the voyage, shameful the conditions we were forced to endure, crowded below deck, living in constant wetness and foul air, fed on the poorest rations. Um, in contrast to this, the press wrote really glowingly of this voyage and were really hopeful that this would be um, repeated again and again. As you kind of saw in the New York Times, there was a lot of um, anti-immigrant, anti-Soviet sentiment, so they we're probably rah-rahing the continued deportation of immigrants at this time. So, Rachel, before we wrap up here, did you want to uh, give any sort of broad thoughts about this uh, incident and these rounds of deportations? I just wanted to point out that this uh, really ties together neatly a lot of the discussions that we've had recently, um, talking about uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, um, how the naturalization process grew harder and harder over time. So it wasn't um, just uh, a process of staying in the country for a set number of years before becoming a citizen. Um, the crackdown on speech at that time, uh, which we have talked about over several episodes. Oh, as well as the Palmer raids. I'm sure, I think, I'm pretty sure we've discussed the Palmer raids over a few different episodes, at least tangentially. So this is really tying together a lot of those concepts that in one big uh, deportation event. And as Rachel said, our next bonus episode is currently planned to be on Lewis F. Post, who's now made an appearance in uh, 
two recent episodes uh, for his sort of unusual political views within the Wilson administration. So we're going to do uh, a bonus on him as well. So stay tuned for that. Rachel, thank you so much for uh, both helping with the research on this as always and uh, coming on to talk today about the uh, Soviet Ark or Red Ark deportations of Russian-born anarchists in the United States in 1919. Yeah, it's always a pleasure.